My name is Jason Bartholomew, and as Trent said, I, I'm one of the pastors here. I get to work with senior high students, and it's a blessing to do that. And I remember as I was um, in seminary and I was learning, I remember a teacher giving us a phrase. I remember where I was. I remember hearing it for the first time, and I remember thinking, yes. And he said, failing to plan is planning to fail. Failing to plan is planning to fail. I remember I liked that as soon as I heard it. I knew, boy, I, I, and I still like it. Um, there are people in this room, as I say it, as you see it, you go, yes. People are like, you know, if you were a little warmer, you might give me an amen for that. Um, it's not in scripture, by the way, so let's not let it be our takeaway. Um, but that's something that you, you find, you know, with planning, we find structure, and with structure, there can be security. And there are people in this room who are planners. Are you one of those people? Are you, are you um, in a family with one of those people? Um, th these people have plans. They also have backups to their plans. They also have backups to their backups to their plans, some people. And that is good. I believe, actually, that some of Jesus' disciples, some of his disciples, some of his followers, were also planners. And uh, later in our service, we're going to... Uh, participate in communion as a family together. And we're going to remember the sacrifice that he made by taking the, the bread and the cup. And as Jesus was instituting this, some of his disciples were, um, were actually asking him some questions. And I believe the planners were actually asking his questions. Um, I want, you can turn to Isaiah. We're going to be in Isaiah 30. But before, as you're doing that, I want to read to you a little bit out of Mark. Mark 14. Um, this, is where, this is where they're getting ready for this. On the first day... I'm in Mark 14. I asked you to go to Isaiah 30. Just get your finger there. Um, on the first day of the unleavened bread, when they had sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Um, and so then he sent two of his disciples. I, I'm putting this in there. We don't know that. I think it's the two that are the planners that he sent. These two. He sent them and he said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, listen to this, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. These, these directions are very similar to what we see a little bit earlier in Mark 11 when he describes how they're going to find the colt for the triumphal entry. That the, you'll find the colt. And, and when you take the colt and somebody asks you about it, tell them you're going to bring it back. You know, it's, it's okay. It's good. Um, but the, the same direction. See, sometimes when we don't think God has a plan, he always does. And these disciples had to learn that. They had to realize that. I have to realize that. You have to realize that. We have to trust Failing to plan is planning to fail. I'm not going to pick that apart. I'm not going to say that that's bad. But I will say that we have to expand it. I will say that it's incomplete. That in and of itself, planning doesn't allow us to grow. See, we can plan our way right out of God's plan. We can plan so far ahead of God that we miss out on what he wants. There are times, as we're going to see in this text, when God doesn't want us even to make a plan. So instead of being holding on to these plans and, and have, finding our security in them alone, we're called to trust. Because when we, when we plan out, based on human reasoning outside of God's wisdom, it's going to fail. If we plan this way, it's going to lead to humiliation. 
It's going to lead to heartache, and it's going to lead to frustration. And the nation of Judah, as we're going to see, had a plan. And to be honest, their plan made a lot of sense. But their plan did not work because it was 100% outside of God's plan for them. We're re-entering into this series. We started late last August on the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah was a prophet primarily to Judah and Israel, but he also prophesied to the surrounding nations as well. His approval rating among the people was low. He was not liked. His name meant the Lord saves or salvation of the Lord. So you knew what he was coming with when he came towards you. He, you knew this. And we're going to see that they, they, were not, they didn't want to hear his full message. And the purpose of the book is to call the nation of Judah back to God and tell of God's salvation through the Messiah. That's what he's there to do. We know that Isaiah was a resident of Jerusalem, and we know that he loved his people. 26 times we see, as he's talking about Judah, he talks about him as my people. So it wasn't just this message to people he didn't, he didn't care about. He, he cared deeply for them. We see in first chapters 1 through 12, God wants us, he, he's, he's preparing the nation of Israel for service, to serve him. 13 through 27, we've gone through this. Um, God turns his attention to the nations that surround Judah and Israel with the message of hope and a message of judgment. And we see this hope and judgment over and over again. We're going to see it again today in this, the section we're in. But chapters 28 through 37, where we find ourselves this morning, we're going to be in chapter 30 through 32, primarily in chapter 30, we see that it's a, it's a communication from Isaiah, God speaking through Isaiah, speak, telling them, you must trust me. Trust me. That's the message. Trust me. Well, for one thing, I ask, well, what, what do they need to trust? Why do they need to trust God? And for one thing, this is God's hope for all of us that we would yield the control we so desperately want and we would trust him. And he wanted that for Judah. He wanted that for Israel. But another reason why they need to trust him is Assyria. Now Assyria was this, this nation that was about to conquer. Assyria was off in the distance. They were about to come and pummel them. They, and they felt that way. That's what they sensed. Isaiah and Judah. I'm sorry, Israel and Judah felt that way. And, and earlier, Ahaz, who was the king of Judah, he made a pact. He made a, a, an agreement with Assyria that was completely outside of God's will. God didn't want anything to do with that. He, he had said, don't do that. Don't make this alliance. And his son, Hezekiah, was also the king of Judah. And he came in and he didn't honor that treaty. However, Hezekiah made a pact with Egypt, which is also something God told him not to do. It was not what he wanted. Isaiah told him not to make a covenant with Egypt. And again, Isaiah is attempting to get the rulers of Judah, the nation of Judah, to stop trusting politics, stop trusting international affairs, and trusting God alone. And the passage we're going to look at, we're going to see that there's much more than this, these outlying nations coming in and, and about to conquer. There's a bigger problem. One commentator said this, and I want to quote, "...the greatest dangers were not outside the nation, they were within." So the nation of Judah had a heart problem. The nation of Judah had a trust problem. They had a worship problem. And we're going to look and we're going to see some of this internal struggle as we look at these, these passages. A um, few ways that we could organize the structure of these chapters, and I, I keep moving them around, and I, I see three the themes. 
Um, your notes kind of have these rebellion, or you could even write rebuke there. We see retribution or judgment. And again, we see restoration or hope. So let's start with rebellion or rebuke. As I've shared, the leaders of Judah have ignored God's clear request to keep from making an alliance with Egypt. Let's look at Isaiah 30, 1 through 5. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. You see, he calls it sin. Who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. For though his officials are at zone and his envoys reach Hanes, these are both cities in Egypt, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. I'm going to skip down to verse 7. Egypt's help, help is worthless and empty. Therefore I have called her Rahab, who sits still. Rahab is another name for Egypt. So the result of the alliance will be what? We see it over and over and over again in the verses I just read. Shame and humiliation. You think you have a good plan. You think it'll hold up. It will not. He, he, he matter-of-factly tells that we're going to keep seeing this. This is not going to work out with Egypt. It's, it's not going to happen the way you hope it does. Your hope is in the wrong thing. He wanted them to so he wanted to lead them in the ways of God, Isaiah did, and he, and, but they, they rejected his promise. They rejected his wisdom, and they went with their own opinion. They went with their own wisdom. Go forward to chapter 31, verse 1. We're going to see the same kind of thing. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall. The helper being Egypt. He who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. This rebellion is so strong. This, this, this sense of rejection of what God has asked them to do is so strong that God tells Isaiah, I want, he's about to tell, we're going to see this, I want you to write these things down, not for this, not for your peers, not for these people, because they are so hard-hearted that they're not, they're not listening to me. I, but I need you to write these things down for a future generation. I need them to hear this. Verse, verse 8. And now... Go, write it before them on a tablet and describe it in a book, that it will be for the time to come as a witness forever. For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, listen to this, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way, turn aside from the path, let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. See, the treaty with Egypt was only a symptom of a deeper problem. They were impatient. They didn't want to hear the word of God anymore. Why? Because God's remedy seemed unhelpful and demanding. And this combination was, was 
awful for them. They didn't want that. They grew tired of Isaiah's ministry. They didn't want to hear what God had to say through him. They didn't want him to stop preaching. They wanted him to preach the things that they liked to hear. Just tell us the good part. They wanted to to kind of rip out the parts that are hard, the the parts that make them uncomfortable, the parts that cause them to, to just trust and just sit and not rely on your own plans. They wanted worship light. They wanted Christianity light. What's the least that I can do? Don't talk about the sacrifice. Quit challenging us to trust. In verse 12 through 14, I'm still in chapter 30. Verse 12 through 14 tell us um, what our own ideas are worth. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, or because you don't want to hear the truth, therefore this iniquity, this sin, shall be on you, shall be to you, like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. I'm at verse 14. And its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from the earth or to dip up water out of the cistern. See, our own ways, their own ways, own reasoning is like a high wall that we hide behind, that we, we compartmentalize, but a crack starts to form and eventually it falls down. It completely falls down. It, it, it's, even though it's slow, it can't hold. Suddenly, it just is unsustainable. It falls. And our ways are like a broken potter's vessel that's, that's smashed to smithereens. There's nothing left that makes sense. And both are too delicate to stand up to the pressure of life. Our plans, if we plan outside of God, if we get ahead of God as the nation of Judah did, will not hold. They'll break. You don't want to hide behind that wall. You don't want to try to carry your precious oil in that jar. It's not going to work. So under rebellion, we see that pending shame and humiliation, because their plan was not better than God's, we see Egypt is not going to come through. We also see rejection of God's word by the people because they were outside of his plan. They got so far that they just didn't want to hear it. And we see that the plan is not going to hold up. It's going to crumble like a wall or like a jar that just completely gets smashed. Under, then we, now we move to retribution and judgment. And, and this is, we're jumping around. I'm going to keep you warm just by moving, your, moving around in the, uh, in the word. And I could, I could change some of this um, of where, you know, I have 30, 27 through 29. You could actually say to 33. Um, but here God reminds the people again what he's going to do to the threat that they're facing. What he's going to do to Assyria. What he's going to do to them. So the judgment is not so much for them for, for doing all the things I just explained. It's more of you feel threatened by Assyria. You are choosing not to trust me. Let me remind you. Let me tell you what will happen to Assyria. Let me tell you what is going, is, is going to go down. This is verse 27. Chapter 30, verse 27. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar. If you are the kind of person who, I don't know why I said kind of person, but if you write in your Bible, um, underline name of the Lord here, because it's key to what's going on. The name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger, and in thick rising smoke, his lips are full of fury, and his tongue is like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with a sieve of destruction and to place on the jaws of the peoples a bridle that leads astray. 
You shall have a song as in the night when the holy feast is kept in gladness of heart as when one sets out to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. And the Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard and the descending blow of his arm to be seen in furious anger and a flame of devouring fire with a cloudburst of storm and hailstones. The Assyrians will be terror-stricken at the voice of the Lord when he strikes with his rod, and every stroke of the appointed staff that the Lord lays on them will be to the sound of tambourines and lyres. Battling with brandished arm, he will fight with them, for a burning place has long been prepared indeed. For the king, it is made ready. Its pyre made deep and wide with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord, underline breath of the Lord, also key, like a stream of sulfur, it kindles it. See, this judgment, this retribution shows that God will defeat the Assyrians. God's used Assyria to discipline Judah, but he's not going to allow them to take the city of David. It won't happen. And he uses a couple different ways to show us this. He, show, he talks about a flood. He talks about you know, the, the overflowing stream. We see storms of fire and hail, sifting of grain, when he says to sift the nations with the sieve of destruction, the harnessing of a horse so that the enemy will be led off like a farm animal. Isaiah is saying that he's declared himself and they can be sure about him. He also has revealed himself to us supremely in Jesus. No power can resist Jesus. Just as no power can resist the name of the Lord or the breath of the Lord, this breath can just breathe onto this pyres and, and this combustible material together is just going to go up in smokes. Nothing can resist that. We can put our hope in that. There's that retribution. There's that judgment. And under that, we see that no power can resist God. We see that ultimate peace and victory will be through God. And we have that. As he talks about celebrating with the, the tambourines and the lyres, I mean, they're, they're dancing and they're celebrating, they're singing because there's victory. See, the victory will be God's, but the delight will be ours. The ultimate peace and victory through God, we have ultimate peace and victory through Christ. So Isaiah repeats restoration and hope that he waits to offer. We're going to be in that section now. Verse, um, in chapter 30, verse 18 we see, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. I want to read that again. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. For people shall dwell in Zion and in Jerusalem, and you shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher. And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, be gone. God waits for you. Wait is that key word. And he waits and we wait, but it's a different wait. It's not the same wait. They waited for the promised Messiah. They waited in faith and openness and humility that, that his timing is right and his methods are wise and so forth. They waited for an unknown period of time before all of this would be fulfilled. He waits as we see, to be gracious to us. He exercised continual patience 
steadfastness, continual patience with us. And he puts up with us moment by moment. He doesn't forsake us. He anticipates and compensates for our needs. God's grace is that favor. Do you notice too, he talks about he's a God of justice. Nothing that we can do will change his nature. Even though they've blown it, that doesn't change the fact that he is a God of justice. We're going to see that a little bit later too. His grace is his favor towards those who don't deserve it. And it's only because of his grace that we receive any blessings at all. And Isaiah described that future day when everything would be restored. When Israel will enjoy the blessings of the kingdom. And they're going to be liberated like prisoners of war. Like liberated prisoners of war. What an image. It's going to be good. They put aside, and then, then I don't want to miss this, they're going to put aside their worthless idols because they're going to be in God's presence. They're going to, it's not because someone's told them to do this. It's just going to come from within. They're going to get rid of it. And they're going to cast it out, and they're going to realize that. He's waiting to be gracious. He exalts himself to show mercy. So whenever you find yourself saying, how long, O Lord? How long will I be in this spot? We see here that his answer may be, well, whenever you're ready. He's waiting for you to put all your trust in him. Verse 19, he will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord gives you all the bread of your adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. But your eyes shall see your teacher and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. And when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. Even in affliction, God's greatest gift to us is himself. His presence. Our last um, series with Advent was Emmanuel, God with us. That's our greatest need. That's what he's promising here. He still reign, this still reigns true. We need his presence. So in this section of Restoration Hope, we see that he waits to be gracious. He waits to show mercy. He is a God of justice. Nothing we can do can change that. We see it later in verse um, in chapter 32, 16 and 17, his justice will dwell, then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. This restoration, he, he gives us his presence, his word, which will cause us to walk on the right path and ditch those idols that don't matter. Last week, I was in here and Pastor Eddie Cole taught, and I couldn't help but see the connection with what he shared with this text in, in Isaiah. He, he shared, over time, these are, this is a quote from him, he said, this is from Ephesians 1, over time you trust more in a plan than the person of Jesus Christ. We aren't called to a plan, we are called to a person. How sure are you of that plan? How, how much do you hide behind that plan and, and that becomes your God? Plans in and of themselves aren't bad. And we'll see that the plan, based on human reasoning versus godly wisdom, that we find ourselves outside of God's purpose. I'm not saying we have to ditch human reasoning completely. But if we ditch godly wisdom completely, we, we will find ourselves completely outside of God's plan. So now, a lot of us learn from people who do it right. And uh, we have a lot of principles that we can go, okay, this, these people did it right, let's follow these. Um, the nation of Judah did it wrong. And uh, so we're going to uh, learn how not to make plans. 
Now, I hope that you realize, I'm kind of going back door here, that this isn't the takeaway that I want you to have of Jason taught us how to make bad plans. He must be the pastor at West Shore Free that makes bad plans. Um, No, I hope that you see what I'm doing here. Um, So let's learn how to make bad plans from the nation of Judah, and let's not do that. Let's do the opposite. Number one, start with yourself. Start with yourself. Don't let God be a part of that. It's no accident that I was given the joy of of marinating in these chapters. Too many times I do find myself getting ahead of God, planning ahead of God with my own plans. And I have his word. As a follower of Christ, I have his Holy Spirit within me, so I should know better. I have people, godly people around me who can speak truth to me. However, I still find myself kind of going, okay, I got this one. I'm going to work on this by myself. And then when it's ready, God, can you catch up to this? Here, will you, will you bless this? He, he asks us to start with him. He wanted the nation of Judah to start with him, to not make a pact and then hope that God will rescue them if, if, if it doesn't work out. Start with God. Proverbs 16, 9 says, The heart of a man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 1, 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. I like how Eugene Peterson uses this, it talks, um, paraphrases this in, in the message, um, Proverbs 1-7. He says, start with God. The first step in learning is bowing down to God. Only fools thumb their noses at such wisdom and learning. So obviously this is the way not to do it. Where, who do we start with? Start with God. One person knows what we, what we do here. Um, we, we start with God, not ourselves. Don't Don't wait. Don't miss out on what he wants here. Number two is listen to only the good parts of what God reveals. The nation of Judah got so far ahead of God that they didn't want to hear what he had to say about their plans. They asked for a change of prophesying. They went, la, 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 I'm not listening. I don't want to hear what you have to say. Don't do that. Check where, if you feel God leading you in a way, check it with what he's revealed. He will never contradict himself. If you're, if you're still curious, ask other people. Seek him in this. That's one way you can know. Check your motives. If you find yourself scared of the prayer, God, speak to me. God, lead me. Because you're scared of where, what he might tell you to do, what he might tell you to get rid of. Chances are you've gotten ahead of God. Chances are you have put up that wall that Isaiah talks about. So I encourage you to not listen to only the good parts, but to to, to realize it's a whole. Take a moment and wait upon the Lord and ask him to direct you. Trust that he will. Trust that his plan is way better than yours. Another way that we can, uh, I hope you're not waking up right now because it'll really seem like I'm I'm giving a really bad sermon. Um, We're talking about ways not to make a plan, right? Another way is to trust human reasoning above all else. Now, it makes sense to all these people, so it must be right. Don't do that. The result of godly wisdom is always better than the result of human reasoning. Always. He knows best. He always does. Rest in his nature. Know that he knows the future. Know that he's a follower, as a follower of Christ, we're firmly planted in salvation. And we have that hope. Human reasoning alone can be dangerous. I read a book 
over the, uh, between Christmas and New Year's that's been around my house. It's called, the book is called Wonder. It's by R.J. Palacio. It's a pretty popular book. Right now there's a movie you can see with this book, and I'm not trying to endorse or tell you the book's bad. I enjoyed it and uh, found myself, I couldn't put it down. Um, and in, let me tell you a little bit about the book, and I want to read a little um, conversation that takes place in there. Um, the book is about a young man named Augie. His, his name's August, and Augie, they call him Augie. He's in fifth grade, and he has a genetic disorder that uh, causes his face to be droopy and to have, um, you know, different things. Where, so where when you look at Augie, there's, you might have a reaction to him um, just because of how he looks. And so as a fifth grader going into school for the first time, you can imagine all the interactions that he has and all the things that he has to learn. I'm not doing a great job explaining the book, but that's the premise. And what happens in the conversation I want to say is he's with his friend Summer. Summer is a popular, cute, great girl, um, friend of his. It's not a romantic thing at all, but they're just friends. And she befriends him, and she eats lunch with him and, um, and, and genuinely likes, has a friendship with him. And they end up having to do a, a group project together, a project together on, of all things, an Egyptian monument. I don't know why Egypt's getting a bad rap today in the sermon, but, but that's what they're doing. And um, they, so they're at her house, and they're working on this, and Augie sees a picture of her family, and she notices a picture of her dad, and he says to her, you know, I've never noticed your dad at a pickup or anything like that. You know, are your parents divorced? And she said, no. My dad was a platoon sergeant, and he, he died in combat. And so then they have a conversation about eternity. Now remember, what I'm, what I'm talking about is human reasoning versus godly wisdom. And I want to read to you this, this conversation. She says to him, you ever wonder what happens to people when they die? Well, he shrugged. Well, not really. I mean, I guess they go to heaven. That's where my grandma went. I think about it a lot. This is Summer speaking. I think about it a lot. I think when people die, their souls go to heaven, but just for a little while. Like, that's where they see their old friends and stuff and kind of catch up on old times. But then I actually think the souls start thinking about their lives on earth, like if they were good or bad or whatever, and then they get born again as brand new babies in the world. Well, why would they do that? Well, because when they get another chance to get it right, their souls get a chance to have a do-over. He thought about what I was saying, and then he nodded. Kind of like when you get a makeup test, he said. Right. But they don't come back looking the same, Augie said. I mean, they, they look completely different than when they came back. Oh, yeah, Summer answered. Your soul stays the same, but everything else is different. I like that, he said, nodding a lot. I really like that, Summer. That means in my next life, I won't be stuck with this face. Now, this is just a story. This is a fictional story. But I found myself praying, as, as is a bestseller, for those who get their hands on this book. And I'm not saying this book is bad. I'm not saying the movie's bad. Just try to watch the movie without crying. You're, just try. Um, I'm, not, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying if we just have human reasoning, the, the, the person who reads this book with no understanding of what God's revealed about eternity, no, no understanding of what God's revealed about salvation, I, I'm, 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 I'm burdened for them because it, it's based on man's opinion. It's not based on truth. And, it, it, and their eternity, is, is they're staring their eternity with this. And be careful not to accept human reasoning over godly wisdom. I, I want to encourage you to have conversations about these worldviews. Don't, don't go home and, and burn the book if you have it, but have conversations about it. So we, the way to make a bad decision is to trust human reasoning above all else. See, man's reasoning versus God's reasoning. If we, if we do this, 
and we, we take just what makes sense to the majority or what man's reasoning, again, we're not trying to reject man's reasoning completely, but if we take it and we take it to the nth and don't apply any of God's wisdom, how we view money is going to, the result we end up is going to be different. We're going to have a different definition for whose money it is in the first place or how debt should be handled or not handled. If we take human um, reasoning as we view sexuality and marriage, we're going to end up with a different definition. We're going to end up with a different conclusion for both. Or origins of life, it brings us to a path that has different definition and different purpose. This is a call to communion. This is a call to be in prayer, a call to be in his word. In order for us to know godly wisdom, we have to be in relationship and be able to be listening to what he has to say. So I want to encourage you to do that. The fourth way to make a bad plan, which I hope you will not do, is to value comfort in your plan over possible discomfort in God's plan. Don't think that the shortcut is always God's call on you. Don't think that the place that's safest is always what he he desires. The enemy wants us to value ease and comfort more than anything else. And a reason that the leaders of Judah made a pact with Egypt is because it made sense to do something. If disciples of Jesus valued comfort, they would have never followed Jesus in the first place. That's not what he called them to. That's not what he calls us to. When we make decisions based on comfort alone, we run the risk of making the exact same mistake the nation of Judah made. If you find yourself outside of God's will, outside of God's plan, there's a whole message in this. It's the gospel, that he receives you back, that you can come back, that you can, it's never too far where you've turned, he's patient and he's steadfast. He waits to show grace. He receives you back. And it, whether it be a plan that you've made or you've, maybe you're in a pattern of sin, you can go, always go back to him. The heartbeat of what separates us from a holy God is that we think we have a plan that's better than his. That's the heartbeat of what we need. That's, that, that's not the heartbeat of a holy God. That's the heartbeat of what separates us from a holy God. We can't do this on our own. We can't plan our way into salvation. Nothing can remove the cover, remove or cover the sin except for the blood of Christ. Only the blood of Christ can do that. And if we're honest, like the nation of Judah, we easily forget that God has a plan and God wants us to trust him and to show others that our hope is in him. So what's the point? Plans are not bad. God wants us to be part of them. He wants to be part of them. He wants to give him access of every part of our lives. So is there a part, is there an area where you, where he's not, he's not there? Your job, is, is he involved in your job? Your family, your finances, your future hopes and dreams. Perhaps you're caring for somebody, you're burdened for someone. How is God involved even in that? Don't be like the nation of Judah and block God out. Don't get so far ahead of him that you don't want to hear from him and you, you don't include him. The, the irony in this is that God actually was asking them not to have a plan. Trust me enough to not even have a plan, a plan B or plan C. Don't do that. Plans aren't bad, but he's asking them to trust in that way. Have you given God that all-access pass? And even as I say this, what are you thinking about now that you think, wow, um, I encourage you to write that down. Whatever that is that's coming to mind right now as we talk about what areas of your life have you not let God have a part of. So the gospel tells us that we can always come back. We can always return. 